the ocean is unforgiving. And I love being on the water. I love being on the ocean. But the ocean wants to kill you. It is always trying to find a way to get you. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to the second episode of the day of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. And next week, we're bringing you a special series called Surviving My Biggest Case. So this is actually my third show of the day. Uh, I recorded one of those today about a serial killer named Scott Kimball. If you haven't heard of him, look him up. We have the FBI agent, Johnny Grusing who hunted him down and caught him and told us the story. But tonight, it is a much different sort of mystery that we are examining, unfolding right now in the cold, dark depths of the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, the frantic search is ongoing for the missing submersible called Titan, which is carrying five passengers to the Titanic wreckage site. Uh, now, it is in desperation mode as oxygen is set to run out soon. The big question of the evening, can the five passengers aboard, including a teenager who's on there with his father, can he and the others still be saved? Uh, we put together an amazing panel for you. Andy Norris, uh, the man in the grayish Oxford shirt, 22 years service as a U.S. Coast Guard attorney. He retired from the service in 2016 with rank of captain. He was appointed as a court-martial trial court judge then a Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals judge. Uh, he qualified uh, as a Marine casualty in, uh, investigator and uh, became a maritime trial attorney. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at Williams Law School and uh, does it all, including joins us here on Surviving the Survivor. The man in what appears to be the blue T-shirt with the funky-looking background, that is Professor X, as he likes to be called, or Nicholas Zyros. Uh, he is the Jerome L. Goldman Endowed Professorship uh, in Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering uh, at the University of New Orleans. We welcome him. And last but not least, Butch Hendrick, who looks like he could be on the Titan. He looks like an explorer. He is the president and founder of Lifeguard System. He's uh, been training water rescue and dive teams how to find submerged bodies and evidence for more than 50 years in more than 15 countries, and his bio goes on for pages and pages. He can only stay with us for about 20 minutes, so we're going to get right into this. Everyone, please get your questions lined up for these experts. Uh, Butch, to you first, as I unmute you here with limited time. We all have limited time, uh, some more than others, but uh, Butch, to you, uh, there's about... Can I have one second? Yeah, absolutely. We'll go to uh, Andy, to you first here. Uh, there are about... 12 hours, if not less, of oxygen uh, left. And um, is this a salvageable operation? Can they still be saved, in your opinion? Uh, first of all, good evening. Thanks for having me aboard, as it were. Uh, so I, I don't want to be the person who says never or can't or won't. Uh, there's always hope. But uh, hope is waning by the minute, as uh, you alluded to. There's about 12 hours of oxygen left, and uh, we're engaged in a, a ex extremely difficult search, which then would have to be followed up by an extremely difficult recovery, uh, and uh, that all has to be done in about 12 hours. 
Butch uh, Hendrick, to you, uh, there's a Navy SEAL, a former commander named Jeff Eggers. I just saw him interviewed. Uh, he says that piloting a submersible is like navigating in outer space. Um, he says you might as well be on the moon. Uh, does he make a valid point here? How difficult is this search and uh, the, right now re rescue effort? Uh, hopefully it does not become a recovery. Well, if you were to go to Mystic, Connecticut, to the Mystic Museum and play with one of the little ROVs that they have in a swimming pool, after you have crashed it about 40 times and hope you have not damaged it too badly, you start to realize this is not a game. When we take and look at a unit like that, we can't have an umbilical or a cable to it because at 12,000 feet, the coefficient drag of the cable will control it. You will have no control over the unit at all. Now, if I add a current, you might as well have just left it on deck as far as I'm personally concerned. And I can see a couple of people here agreeing with me on that. So, yeah, it, it's a talent. It takes hundreds of hours to learn how to use it. And now we're talking 12,000 feet, 4,000 meters below the water. It's not a game. Yeah. Um, by the way, SCS Nation, Butch is only staying on for about 20 minutes. And then we're going to have another guest come up at the bottom of the hour. So you're going to see a little shuffling back and forth just to forewarn you. So the name of the, uh, the company, the submersible is called Titan. But the company is Ocean Gate. Uh, this is a 22-foot submersible, which lost contact with its support ship Sunday about an hour and 45 uh, minutes into its dive. And on board are a British adventurer, two members of a prominent Pakistan, uh, Pakistani business family from London, a Titanic expert, and the CEO himself of Ocean Gate, which is a Washington State-based company. Uh, Dr. X, I am not T. Payne, says, I'm trying to stay hopeful about all this. Uh, hearing from Andrew and Roger will be uh, really helpful. Um, what do you think about the circumstance right now? It's obviously very dire, but um, it, it seems like Andy's a, you know, a little more skeptical. Do you have hope that these five can be saved, Dr. X? Thanks for having me uh, on, on my turn as well. Uh, um, it's a slim chance, but, you know, where I come from, we say uh, hope uh, dies last. So, so, you know, we can only hope and pray for these folks. I think there is a huge effort underway right now involving at least three nations, to my knowledge, maybe more. I've heard the French uh, system uh, has been recruited. Of course, there, there, there are Canadian and U.S. assets. And we can only hope for the best. There were these uh, uh, these sounds that were uh, intercepted earlier on that were coming into uh, in at regular intervals. Uh, so there is a slim chance of saving these people, uh, you know. Uh, but it's still a slim chance, you know. It's not, you know, nothing is guaranteed here. Yeah. And it gets slimmer and slimmer when you start to hear some of the details. So. Uh, the spokesperson for the Coast Guard today said that there are, quote, limited rations, meaning food is running out, um, and less, as we said, than a half a day supply of oxygen, less than 12 hours at this point. Uh, by the way, there are no seats in the Titan. You have to sit on the floor, and some people are facing one way because it's so tight. Others are facing the other way. Uh, there's one toilet, no seats, and uh, they're also 
uh, imagining uh, experts are like these gentlemen that they're out of power. Uh, Bush, do you think that they are probably or likely out of power at this point? There's a more than reasonable chance that their power source is gone. I would imagine based on a couple of the individuals who are in that unit that they realized when they were in trouble, let's start conserving power, let's start conserving energy. The hypothermia that's going to be affecting them is going to be causing breathing to become very difficult, in my opinion. And one thing that I think is important, we continuously talk about 96 hours, but to my knowledge, it was never tested with five individuals or even three or four individuals for its its time window and the use of oxygen and how well the scrubbers would work. So we're gambling on a mathematical projection that was never realistically tried. That's that's really interesting. And that's a very big concern. One of the things I'd like to add, because in case I might have to go, is that we don't know that the communication is shut down in both directions. What we do know is that they're not receiving communication from the submersible. We don't know that the submersible is not still receiving some sort of communication from them. When we look at any major disaster, communication is one of the most important parts of anything. Any war zone, communication is imperative and it constantly breaks down. So we don't, they could be actually still getting receiving. And that's why there might be tapping, trying to give out information. I'm sorry. Not at all. I want to get back to that tapping in a minute, but I want to also uh, kind of dive in, pun intended, into your experience. You've been doing uh, these sorts of recovery efforts for 50 years, your bio says. Um, where would this rank in terms of the difficulty of trying to save these people? 1,000 times greater than almost anything that anyone has ever attempted before. We've, we've got a bigger problem. If we find it, I personally believe it got entangled and it's sitting attached somewhere. And the reason it's self-deploying lifting system is not working is because it can't. It's, in, it's caught on the bottom. Like a scuba diver in black water, suddenly we're trapped. And we, we train on how to get out of it. There's no training in this because there's only there's no manipulative arms. There's only one door. But at 12,000 feet, even running a side scan sonar, you think of the angle. I've got to have minimum 36,000 feet of cable to tow the side scan in order for it to do its job. So when we start looking at getting down there, it's... Once we find it, getting them, and we have to bring them back to the surface or we can't get them out. Yeah. Sorry. I know you got to get that too. I'm going to mute you while we hang on. Uh, Andy, this is, um, so these noises that Butch was just talking about, this banging uh, potentially on the hull, or I don't know what the correct terminology is, of this submersible, uh, do you believe it is coming from the Titan, This these noises that are being heard? Well, first of all, uh, the... What Coast Guard has uh, said in their uh, official statement is that they uh, detected underwater noises in the search area. Rolling Stone uh, magazine is is the publication that uh, says that they've read some emails or some memos from Department of Homeland Security in which the Coast Guard operates that describes as as banging and, and rhythmic uh, banging or in, in sort of period every every some some time frame uh so 
there has been no official confirmation that this is anything other than uh, your ambient ocean noise. Uh, there's plenty of noise in the oceans from living sources, non-living sources. And uh, so all we know is that uh, some underwater sounds were detected and they are being analyzed by professionals in the U.S. Navy and, and otherwise. The best professionals in the world are supposed to be analyzing this sound. And uh, but there's been no official announcement as what that analysis has revealed. And again, only uh, only a media source that uh, says that it was banging. So that's, you know, so it's something. It's enough that the U.S. Coast Guard says that they have redeployed some assets uh, as a result. So uh, it's something. But uh, nonetheless, it's far from any, any anything conclusive that these guys are still alive at all. all right, hang on one second. I just want to check in with Butch. Uh, I know you're uh, you have a lot of interviews, so if you have to jump, Butch, you just go. Um, my final question to you, though, what about these these banging sounds? Um, do you believe it's coming from the submersible? I like to be positive whenever I can, because if I can stay positive, I can keep the other searchers, the people who work for me, or the people I'm training positive. While you stay positive, you have high energy and high morale. So is it possible that banging is coming out of the submersible? Yes. Is it possible based on a couple of the individuals who are in there that they understand Morse code? Undoubtedly, right? I, I believe they do. Could they be trying to just send out a signal? It could also just be something banging against the hull that's laying there and it's the currents are severely changing like the Andrea Doria. They change so dramatically you can't even you can't even predict them. So but it could very well be that they're knocking on the inside saying, it's almost over for us, please help. But Butch, you seem like you have ice in your veins. I just met you a few minutes ago. Uh, I would want you to be the captain of my uh air airplane that I'm about to get on uh, this weekend, um, even, even, if you don't know how to, even if you don't know how to fly. I happen to have my own airplane. Oh, there you go. You seem like you would. Um, I have my own plane. I've had my pilot's license. I've had several airplanes and just sold a get low blow chopper. Can you fly a 747, you think? No, I cannot, but, uh, <laughs> I, can, but I can fly a Strike Master jet, British jet. <laughs> What what would you be doing right now? Uh, probably easier said than done and answered. But if you were in that Titan right now, what, if anything, could you do? You can just attempt to keep the cramps from hurting you so bad that you can't breathe. You can attempt to keep anyone and everyone that's still in there alive, breathing slowly and thinking positive, even though the back of your brain says, this isn't going to work. And I believe that at least one individual in that unit, in that submersible, has lived a life saying, I can have anything I want in life, and I don't, I'm not afraid of death. Or that if that person could not have gone into outer space, he could not have done the other things he's done in his life. So because of that, if he's not frightened of dying, as many of us are not, you can't live certain lives and not be and walk around scared. He is doing everything he can to keep anyone else that's alive in there positive until he's gone. Um, that's what I believe. To the other guests, I I, I will pro I promise to give you more uh, parody in just a moment, but I'm fascinated Sorry. by Butch. You have, to, do you have to go, Butch? 
Uh, I've got about three more minutes, four more minutes, and Australia is calling me back, and I have to go on with them. Butch, what was the scariest situation you personally found yourself in? One of two, but one on the UH-53 submarine being suddenly found myself snagged up underneath one of the stern tubes and realizing that I didn't bring enough cutting tools. Obviously, I got out, but it changed the way I played a game. The other was one time being in a van trying to pull two young people out of a van that was upside down in a river. When I did not tie back the door, I went in and it closed. So now my tether line was snapped in between the the frame of the vehicle and the door. I was inside and with it upside down, my air bubbles removed the carpet that was now the ceiling, which would have been the floor, and it laid on top of me. So I now had a 12-year-old in my hands, a carpet over the top of me, and my exit was no longer reasonably available. And I thought, today's today's the day. So then you stop, long, slow breaths, think about it, put it back together, realize it's upside down. The trip to open the door is up, not down, and got myself out. Never made that mistake or trained anyone to ever make that mistake again. Butch, I'm going to have to have a scotch. My Thank palms you. Are, my palms are soaking wet. Promise me you'll come back, Butch. I will. And oh. you, I'm, I'm thrilled to be with these two individuals. It's just, wow, to be in the same picture frame with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Big yeah, honor. Thank you. Take care, Butch. Thank you. Um, And just like that, Butch is gone. Wow, that really, uh, the palms are sweating. Um, So, uh, Andy, back to you. And now we'll have a little more... Uh, even-handedness here. So once these banging noises were heard, uh, the spokesperson for the uh, for the Coast Guard said that ships were redirected um, uh, to kind of re-examine the search area and create new parameters. But uh, Butch was talking about the current. I mean, Andy, if you can just talk, because we're all lay people here, I mean, how complex is the ocean uh, in terms of the currents, especially around there. I mean, this is like 400 miles east of Cape Cod, not far from where you are in, in Rhode Island. But uh, I mean, just how complicated is this? Well, so in terms of the currents, uh, and that's really that this is a this is a search and rescue operation that is really two separate operations in a way. There's the surface search that is what the U.S. Coast Guard is what Coast Guards do around the world all the time. They have trained helicopter crews, they have trained aircraft crews, they have trained vessel crews, they operate with each other in a coordinated manner. They do complicated search patterns based upon uh, ocean uh, conditions, the set, the drift currents. Uh, So that's what's happening right now. So they're looking on the surface in case this thing has come up. It's small and it's a huge ocean. And so it's going to be drifting uh, with the currents. And so the Coast Guard is trying to find it if it's on the surface. At the same time, concurrently, uh, they're also looking under the surface, uh, presumably anywhere through the water column, two and a half miles of depth, all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. They're trying to find this thing using technology uh, and uh, and the conditions at the bottom of the sea are you know, dreadful. 
otherworldly. It's like, you know, the worst outer space thing you can imagine. It's pitch black. There's no light below about a thousand feet. So below about a thousand feet, there's no light at all. Pitch black. The temperature is effectively at freezing. So that's where Butch was talking about the hypothermia mm. uh, setting in for these guys. And the uh, conditions, the, uh, the, the, there's, uh, it's d- described that, that the depths there is dangerous, hostile with inconsistent ebbs, inconsistent currents. So even down at those depths, the, uh, the, con- the water conditions are not favorable. So this is the operating environment uh, that, uh, that the searchers are having to contend with. And, uh, you know, I want to stay positive like Butch, but um, you can't help but think that this is a horrific, horrendous way to go because they know it's coming uh, if they are not saved. It is freezing. It is dark. There's no food. Uh, it's it just it, it's it's horrible. So let's hope for a good outcome here. Uh, Dr. X, I learned about you because you're all over USA Today. Uh, you said that there are uh, there is a good chance that the banging noise is heard by the search crews did in fact come from the uh, submersible called Titan. But you said it's good and bad news because it might mean people on board are trying to communicate. However, you said because sound can travel long distances and does not move in a straight path underwater, it might not help narrow down the position. Can you explain that a little bit? Again, everyone here watching is uh, a lay person. You come here with a lot of um, you know knowledge, but if you could explain what you're saying there yeah um the 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 best if not the only means of communication underwater is sound light and radio travel badly if at all uh, especially at the depths that we are considering here uh so so that's why rovs for example are outfitted with umbilicals and tethers uh, to, to connect them to the surface uh, with electrical signals. Uh, Dr. So, X, what, what, I'm, apologies for my ignorance, but what is an ROV? We keep hearing that. Yeah, sorry. It's, it stands for Remotely Operated Vehicle. That is a vehicle that it is actually uh, uh, um, uh, connected with a tether to the surface. And there is an operator, more like a drone for the air, uh, so uh, um, the operator is sitting in the comfort or relative comfort of a mothership on the surface and sends commands and receives back uh, signals like uh, optical signals or audio signals or other sensor signals from uh, the deep and and adjusts uh, the motion of the vehicle. Uh, using something like any a Game Boy console or something along those lines, um, and and that's a remotely operated vehicle. It's very commonly used. I think it was used, for example, in the first uh, survey to to locate the Titanic back in the eighties or whenever it was used. It was used in the Deep Blue uh, incident uh, uh, to locate the the problem and then to, to, to stop the sprouting of oil coming out of the vent uh, on the seabed. So that's what a remotely operated vehicle is. The problem with remote, we, we could deploy remotely operated vehicles in this case, but 
remotely operated vehicles do not have a very a large radius, especially at that depth from the mothership. So we must have a very good prior knowledge of at least the approximate location of uh, the craft where where it, where it, it may be laying right now. Um, uh, so, but the sounds that came were sharp metallic bangs. They were not like, for example, whale sounds or other like a seal sounds or like that they like marine mammal or dolphin sounds and things like that. That's what they were described at least in in the briefings. And also they repeated in very fixed and and, and significant time intervals, I think about 30 minutes apart for two or three times. So uh, there is a good chance that they're being made by a human um, uh, inside some kind of a metallic structure. I mean, there might be another metallic structure there. I don't know, or maybe an alien structure that they're trying to communicate. But probably, um, uh, uh, not probably, I'm just saying, you know, it, it is a good chance that they're coming from the south. Now, in contrast to light in the air, um, sound waves underwater travel more or less like light travels through a prism. So they, they get diffracted and, and constantly uh, changing um, their path. So you cannot kind of triangulate or even uh, know which direction they're coming from. You may be getting reflections uh, from the seabed, from various strata and, and layers in the ocean that they may produce a waveguide effect that they may cause uh, um, uh, reflections to occur and things like that. Plus, the sound can travel really very long distances underwater. For example, back in the Cold War days, uh, the Navy used to have um, acoustic technology that was able to detect um, Soviet submarines coming uh, offshore of Cape, uh, of North Cape into the Atlantic Ocean when they were entering the Atlantic Ocean. So you can see how long the distances sound can travel. So, um, so this is good news if it is coming from the guys on the, on the craft, uh, on the, on the submersible, that they are, at least some of them are still alive and conscious and, and, and like all functional. But at the same time, it's also bad news because, um, you know, we're getting more and more anxiety trying to help them. But really, there's little we can do to spot the source of the sounds. Uh, that's, that's at least what I can gather from the briefings that were made by the Coast Guard and the rescue teams. Very well explained there. Uh, Andy, to you, how, um, at that depth of the ocean, how noisy is the, Are there a lot of sounds in the ocean at that depth? Uh, I wouldn't want to speak out of turn. I, I, I do know that the ocean, there's a lot of what's described as white noise in the ocean and uh, anything from bivalves to whales and, uh, and, uh, and otherwise. So I, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I have the expertise in exactly what, what depths or what levels, but, uh, 
But my understanding is it's uh, the ocean is a, a noisy place, and that is why skilled uh, operators uh, are have to when when been trying to detect submarines or whatever it is, they're very skilled operators that can separate out what is the sound of machinery from the sound of uh, whales doing their thing or, or whatever it is that's that's in the ocean. And Andy, let's say hypothetically, uh, as Dr. X thinks it could be, this noise is coming from the submersible. Um, is it still a moot point? I, I mean, is there, even if they know it's coming from it, is there enough time to find it and do something? Because they'd have to bring it up 12,000 feet uh, with all this limited time, oxygen, and everything against them. Well, so, you know, that's, uh, first of all, Dr. X, as, as he explained it, is the difficulty of even using it as a location-type tool. But even if they were to, to find these guys, if they're at the bottom of the sea, then, you know, your problems are only half over as uh, as our previous guest said i mean this is a thousand times it's a it's in, in it's you know million times more difficult than anything that that really has has been uh conceived uh, so you you're gonna have to if you can find them then the question is how do you get this vehicle this vessel back to the surface because there is no rescue at those depths uh the u.s navy has rescue uh, vessels that uh, it for its submarines they're purpose built so they can form a seal around the hatch and submarines and they can go to the assistance of a submarine that has uh, sunk and they can remove people from a submarine at depth but they can only operate to 2000 feet the most capable equipment of that nature which is purpose built can only operate to 2000 feet this is at 12800 feet there's nothing. There's no vessel at all that could remove these guys from the uh, from the submersible. It has to be brought to the if it's at the bottom or in the water column. It really doesn't anywhere uh, short of the surface. It has to be brought to the surface. Um, and Andy, I want to get back to you because you are a retired Coast Guard about the operations. But uh, Doctor X, this is uh, kind of a much bigger question, but you'll see here this comment from Jay Watts. Hey, from Northern Ireland, this is all we're talking about here in Belfast, followed by this comment. I've been obsessed with the Titanic since I've been a little girl. No matter the amount of money I had, I would never make that trip. Me neither. Um, what is it about the ocean and the fascination? I mean, what got you so interested in this to make it a career? Why, why do you think people are so invested in this right now? I think it's, you know, compassion and, and you know, uh, even if they wouldn't make the choice to, to, to go on this trip, they, they're still fascinated by uh, sea stories, as the Marines call them. <laughs> so so, so, so uh, it, it's a fascinating place. And, and I can tell you this, uh, it's very close to, an, uh, to outer space, not another planet particularly, but outer space, you have the lack of oxygen, you have the darkness, you have the cold, and you have a pressure problem. It's an overpressure problem, while in, in space is actually an underpressure problem, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, but, but it's still a pressure problem. That's why I guess NASA 
is actually using uh, uh, underwater training to train astronauts that are going to go on spacewalks and the like, because it's a hostile environment, as hostile as space can be. Uh, so this fascinates people, at least a big, uh, a big number, a great number of people. So, so I think that's 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 what uh, you know is 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 the situation. Plus, you know, these people were pioneering a new kind of adventure, a new kind of uh, um, pursuit. So, so you know, uh, uh, even. Probably they all knew what they were getting into and they were very conscious about it. We still want them to come out alive and, and, and strong and in one piece and all of them. You know, I, I'm, you know, that's the, I, I'm, I'll be the last one to give up hope for this one because I want them to come back. I'd like most of your viewers probably, yeah. uh, as, yeah. as I think. Very well said. Uh, Sir Barry here, does anyone know the temperature, Dr. X would know the answer, at the Titanic site? Uh, uh, and, how, and how would it affect the people in the submersible? Yeah, I think just like in space, like I said before, your first uh, uh, danger is lack of oxygen. Your second danger is pressure. And your third danger is hypothermia. Okay? Uh, so, uh, uh, I think I, I, I can speculate to a certain extent that the initial cause of the failure was probably some kind of a power failure. That's what I can uh, kind of speculate right now. Uh, 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 so that means that there's no mean to hit the interior of the sub, of the, of the craft. So um, the temperature down there is slightly above freezing bear in mind that salt that uh, seawater because of the salt in it freezes a little bit lower than fresh water does so you can say that it is in the neighborhood of 32 or 33 fahrenheit and now they they have been down there for so many hours if not days so uh, unless there was some kind of artificial heat source keeping them hot it would be probably very, it is probably going to be very cold uh, um, uh, inside, the, uh, in, inside the craft. Um, there is a small um, layer, relatively small, close to the surface called thermocline, which, uh, in, at, at which the temperature starts rising as we go from bottom up. But below that, depth of the thermocline, actually you have a constant temperature which is very low and very close uh, to freezing. Okay, so that's that's the thing. Because the sunlight, like I said earlier, cannot travel underwater. That's the thing. So it's not just that it is dark, it's also super cold. That's That's the idea. Dr. X, I live in Miami, and uh, the water here is a little too cold for me, so I can't imagine uh, what it's yeah. like for them. Um, I know you have to, I don't want to let you go, but uh, I know you have yeah. to leave at the bottom. Uh, if you want to I lived in Fort Lauderdale, very close to you, for, <laughs> for uh, three or four years. The, 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 the water, just it is like in New Orleans, 
it's quite shallow. Uh, there, I mean, relatively shallow, okay? That's why we can drill in the Gulf and, and things like that. Where these people are located, it's actually a big trench. That's why it's so deep. So we, you're way below the thermocline over there. So it's going to be a very cold inside that boat. Even if they're halfway deep, not like all the way to the bottom, even if they're halfway deep, it's already very cold in there, unless they can find a heat source, which it's not very probable that they can right wow. now. No. Uh, do, so, you, do you have to yeah, go, Dr. Okay. X, or, or can uh, you stay? Maybe, yeah, if you have a last one or two last questions or remarks, I can, I can help you. Yeah. Well, I'll ask you Sarah's question here. She says, obvious question, and, and Butch sort of answered it, but what do you think happened? What's your best guess as to what happened? Do you think it got caught on some sort of line or got, you know, jammed up in the Titanic potentially? They could have got a Danwood. That's one possibility. Or the other thing is they might have they might have lost power. They might have experienced uh, a very serious power failure. Maybe they got their main battery bank flooded or something like that. Um, you know, it must, if, if it is, if it doesn't end on the surface, then it means that, uh, they could not deploy their, um, uh, surfacing, uh, like, uh, emergency system, uh, which is, I think should be at least that would, that's how I would design it independent of the battery or at least being functional, even if there is a serious or total battery failure, um, uh, which in this case would mean that the, the craft got entangled uh, someplace or got hit by a whale or something, and, and then, you know, cannot deploy the surfacing mechanism. That's what I would, that's what we can say right now. Um, uh, you know, at this point, I, you know, Dr. X, uh, your insight is fascinating. I hope that you will come back as uh, we get more developments. C certainly. Uh, just let me know and I'll try to make uh, uh, you know, uh, time to talk with you again. It's been very good and it's really good to meet uh, Dr. Norris and, and, and you, Joe. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank you and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Yeah. Andy, it's just me and you and STS Nation. And when you're when your oh, wife. Me. <laughs> so uh, JMM Barkovich, and I do feel bad. So let me know when you have to bounce. But I'd love to keep you for a little while here to take some questions. But any reason why no signaling device that you know of? Or is there one? And they simply may have lost power. So there is one. Uh, the <clears throat> the communication mechanisms that this submersible has are there's two. Interestingly enough, that there's two-way text uh, with the uh, with the control units at the surface that they uh, can can communicate with the sub, and then the sub also has a pinger, uh, an acoustic signal that sends out a ping or supposed to send out a ping every 30 minutes to signal that it's okay. When communications were lost with this sub about an hour and a half into its dive, uh, the uh, pinging uh, sound disappeared as well. So what that then 
says is that you know when you, you just heard about the possibility of them having lost power, that sort of uh, indicates that it may have been something to do with a loss of power uh, because that the pinging the sound stopped. Hmm. Um, here's a question that seems obvious, but is much easier asked than done. Casey in Boston, have they checked the actual Titanic and debris area yet? Uh, that's where they were headed. Hang on one sec. I'm going to bring in Sal. Are you there? I am here. I apologize for my tardiness. Absolutely not. Let me just tell the audience. Welcome, uh, Sal. Please meet uh, attorney uh, Andy Norris and uh, Dr. Sal McCurgliano, if I'm saying it right. He's an associate professor of history at Campbell University in North Carolina, an adjunct professor at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Marine Transportation from the State University of New York Maritime College. The bottom line is this guy knows a lot about the ocean. And uh, welcome and thank you for being here. Uh, I'm going to have you take some questions. We're kind of in the middle of it, um, but just stand by uh, Dr. M and we'll be right with you. But uh, to this, Andy, checking the actual Titanic and debris area, not as easy as it, as it sounds, right? Not as easy as it sounds. Uh, so you're talking about uh, which would be the search component, uh, the, the, the search at the bottom that is going on. But in order to, uh, how are you going to look under the wa underwater at, at two and a half miles, 12,800 feet deep? Well, the only way you, you're going to look is by sending down a uh, submersible, an ROV like was described earlier but these are effectively robots at the end of a huge long tether and so uh, you have to deploy these things and then send them down and then you then you control the movements from the surface through a fiber optic cable and you can turn it one way turn it the other now these things they do have lights and they do have cameras so the operator can see uh, but they can only see a very limited distance, and it's where that light happens to be pointing. They also have sonar, what's called side scan sonar, sonar on them, which can send out a ping and detect things on the seabed that not you know that that are rising up off the seabed. But uh, then those have to be analyzed and uh, further explored if it looks like it could be this uh, this uh, missing submersible so there's a lot of stuff that has to go right just to see what is what is down there you have to be able to first of all you have to have a, 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 a rov on site that even has that capability and that has that operation operational depth uh so and then you have to uh, the sea state has to be correct or, or right to allow for it to be deployed because if it's bobbing up too much then you snap the fiber optic cable and you lose the device. So they can only operate up, up to certain sea states. And then if the sea state is right, then you start lowering it down the two and a half miles to where the Titanic is. And you hope there isn't a fault, an electrical short circuit or whatever it is on the way. That's what the search uh, involves. And even if all that goes well, you're just limited in what you can see and how you see it, whether through a a radar signal or, or a sonar signal or or visually uh, but with uh, it 
very sort of short distances and there's a huge debris field. So you're, you're looking amongst all this debris and you're singling out, finding that one piece of thing that is the right piece of debris, as it were, amongst that huge field. That's what you're contending with. By the way, prior to the story breaking, I had no idea the Titanic crashed this close to the United States. For some reason, I thought it was much further into the middle of the Atlantic. And uh, it's also why I prefer to watch Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie than uh, ever go down to actually see it myself. But that's just me. Um, Pam Hart Young says, hi, Joel and STS best guest. I was just telling my daughter in Idaho last night that I'm surprised the crew is not beating on the walls of that submersible to create a sound. I pray they save them. Uh, Dr. M, we've been discussing this. Uh, do you think those banging sounds were, in fact, coming from the submersible? And what do you think possibly happened to it? I Well, I think the sounds, the way the Coast Guard reports it every 30 minutes with a sound, that gives you a kind of an indication, okay, this is not something natural. If it's a time, if it's happening... Uh, I will say that is not enough time for the sonar to really track it. Uh, you have to remember that most military sonar is not geared to operate at this depth. When you start dropping sonar buoys and you start using military assets, a, a conventional Navy sub or a, a nuclear sub, but a, a, a traditional military sub operates maybe down to a depth of about a thousand feet. Titanic's at 13,000 feet. And so this is a really deep area. And most sonar buoys, especially listening either in passive or using their active sonar has a very limited range. You literally are going to have to drop these buoys right on top to get a hearing of that. And then if they're only hitting for a short period of time, it's really hard to triangulate. One of the issues that has to be brought up is, is the fact that this submersible was not fitted with any sort of emergency beacon of any kind, assuming it's still intact. A beacon would allowed you to home in on it. And that's something that you see on board ships. Ships are designed to carry what's called an EPIRB, an emergency positioning indicating radio beacon that floats off when the ship sinks. Or the vessel data recorder, actually, much like an airplane's black box, has a, a kind of a sound emitter. So you can why, home why in didn't on it directly. This I'm sorry to interrupt, but why did this not have a beacon? It seems obvious to have one. This ship is not a the ship has not been classified by an agency. This ship has been built by OceanGate and the CEO of OceanGate really talks about this a lot in, in an amazing way. He kind of def defied it. He has three submersibles. One of them is certified by an, an entity called the American Bureau of Shipping, which is a classification agency. This is uh, the, the analogy I use. It's like having your car inspected. That's the, what ABS is. They're the inspection agency. They go in and make sure everything is fitted normally. Everything's operating and you're meeting your requirements. One of his three submersibles was certified by ABS. ABS has a 273-page manual on submersibles. This is what you need. He argued, the CEO argued, well, classification agencies will slow us down. They're redundant because I am much safer than the, the agency, and therefore I don't need them. The other issue is I'm operating in international waters. I'm beyond 12-mile limit. I'm outside the, the territorial waters, and therefore there's no boat police who are going to come in and certify me. Now, I think that's a problem because they're on board a Canadian ship coming out of a Canadian port. I think Canada is going to have to, the, the transport ministry is going to have to talk about this, about why there wasn't inspections of it. Now, they're not breaking the law. That's the problem here. It's the lawless sea. It's the, it's the wild, wild west out there in the ocean in some cases. And you can get away with it until something bad happens, as in this case. And uh, I want to get into this more uh, with Andy. Uh, Kristen Grogan says, 
The submersible has one button inside, a toilet, and it's controlled. This is true by a Logitech, like a joystick, remote controller, what the F. And there were problems with it in 2022. Uh, this, I didn't actually recall, but there have been a bunch of comments. Uh, Andy, to you, later on, I want to get, and I know you don't have that much later on because I don't want your wife to, to kill you, Andy, but I want to get into some of the potential liability here. But Madeline says, any idea why it took the crew eight hours to report this major issue? Same question from Lorna. The subcontractors didn't report it for eight hours. Do we know any? Do we have any idea why? Uh, no. Uh, the uh, especially when you think about time being of the essence and of the ultimate essence, every second is critical. So that's a bit of a problem. But as uh, as our other guests here uh, mentioned is that, you know, this is a vessel that is in uh, international waters. If it uh, was in U.S. waters, there's a mandatory requirement as soon as a casualty has occurred or as soon as immediate corrective actions to take care of the casualty have occurred, then you have to notify the Coast Guard. Out here, there is there is no requirement under the law. So they're really uh, a, a notification. It's really just sort of more of a practical uh, thing on on their end. And, and you know, I can only assume that uh, they were hoping against hope that that this thing would surface. Because as Kristen, I think, was the guest, you know, she mentioned that the, yeah, they had problems in 2022, and it's true. So what Kristen has done is watch that video from a, uh, I think it was a CBS reporter who actually went down. Mm -hmm. uh, to the Titanic in 2022 in this very uh, submersible. And he, he filmed it and documented it. And there's some very interesting stuff. So I highly commend, uh, you know, for your viewers to do a search and just see what, yeah. what uh, he was talking about there. But uh, yeah, they had issues in 2022, but that's the thing. These uh, again, because of sea state, you may try to deploy it and you can't. And that in 2022, one of the issues was the launch system. They have a, a purpose built system to launch and recover this. They put it in the water in this system and then it detaches from the launch system. There was some problem with the launch system, but there's problems with these undersea things all the time. These ROVs or these autonomous, but, but you're, you're operating in the saltwater environment, which is very, uh, it's terrible for electronics. It's terrible for, and you're operating in these in these conditions. And so these faults, electrical faults, short circuits, they're just common. And David Pogue is that journalist. Uh, he works for CBS News now and uh, did report about it. Um, Andy, back to you here, and then we'll switch back to Sal in a moment. Uh, just to get some of the um, logistics on the record here, there are five vessels searching on the ocean's surface from a few different countries. Underwater, there were last count two ROVs. Those are remote, as I learned, operated vehicles. And there's aircraft also. But you were in the Coast Guard uh, pulling back the proverbial curtain. Um, what's going on behind the scenes right now with the, uh, you know, the higher uh, upper level command uh, chain in the, in the Coast Guard? Are they panicked? Are they worried about... Um, public perception? Are they just singularly focused on this? Are they freaking out, for lack of a better term? What's happening behind the scenes right now? No, they're not freaking out. Uh, these are uh, 
and I'm not just you know service jingoistic uh, sort of thing here. These are uh, professionals. They have a job to do. They know how to do their job, and they're doing it. What's happening behind the scenes is that they are uh, there's multiple things. They're controlling the search and rescue operation uh, that is looking for this uh, you know the aircraft and the ship and the ship. So they're controlling, they're planning the search patterns in the grid. So that's happening. Uh, they are working with experts in uh, in underwater searches and underwater recovery to try to conduct that aspect of the search, which is not the Coast Guard's bread and butter at all. It's really nobody's bread and butter. Nobody does that sort of thing. So they're trying to figure it out as they go, consulting the best experts in the world. At the same time, they're also trying to gather as much equipment as they can get out to the scene so that they can uh, it search, they can get as many things searching at the same time as possible, and so that they ha can have equipment on scene to do a recovery or to, to take whatever actions is necessary once the search actually finds a submersible. So if it is hung up under a piece of uh, debris, for example, they're going to have to have some equipment on scene that has rope manipulator arms or uh, some ROV with manipulator arms that can cut or move or somehow uh, uh, take action down at the bottom of the sea to free this thing up. So they're trying to get the equipment. Uh, it's a terrible logistic and organizational challenge, and that's really the biggest challenge that they're trying to face at the same time as they're trying to figure out how to even conduct this type of search. And uh, I do believe the Coast Guard is remaining cool, calm, and collected. Uh, they are professionals, and uh, hopefully this will have a good ending, although it's getting more and more dire. Uh, to you, Dr. Uh, M, implosion is another major factor that has only been touched on, followed right back to back almost from Joy. I believe it has already imploded. This was an untested sub. Um, is that a viable possibility? Do you think that could have happened? And why would that have happened? Well, this sub has gone down uh, multiple times, actually. In 2021, 2022, it's done expeditions down there. So it's not the first. This is the first time this season it has gone down. There are three, you know, when this initially happened, there were th three potential scenarios. Number one is an implosion. And understand the stresses we're dealing with here. You're talking about at the bottom 380 times atmospheric pressure. It doesn't take much to begin to crush and, and, and create problems. And all it takes is an imperfection. The, the, the ocean is unforgiving. I sailed for seven years and I love being on the water. I love being on the ocean, but the ocean wants to kill you. It does not love you. It does not care for you. It is always trying to find a way to get you. And that is the, that is, that is the, the hubris I think that I have a big problem with, with this company and the CEO is that you do checks after checks after checks, redundancy after redundancy. I'm a diver. I never dive without a buddy diving and a backup plan. What's my plan? We know if we get in trouble, who we're going to call? How far away are we? How do you do this? And in many ways, they didn't do that here. So if there was an imperfection, then it's, it's, it's over immediately. I, I mean, that's the one thing here. The second option is it could have experienced an electrical problem. It would shed its ballast weight and it pops up. This is one of the reasons I think they delayed in calling because uh, as long as it takes to go down, it takes a while to come back up too. And they may have waited to see if it surfaced and to find it. And it's difficult to find. This thing is the size of a minivan in the Atlantic. It's a really difficult small speck to find. 
if it's on the bottom, you have multiple problems. I mean, you have, everyone keeps talking about the air supply in it, but if their power is out, it's cold. It's almost freezing temperatures at the bottom. You're talking about hyperthermia, running out of water. It's just, it, it's a nightmare scenario to be trapped in this thing with no power in the dark. I, I, I would like to add something, and uh, so uh, I, pre I think those points were all very interesting. With regard to the implosion, mm. uh, it is, as uh, you know, it, as, as the slightest defect, right, it may have held up for the first uh, whatever number of dives, and then this one. It, so that is a possibility. Uh, there was a uh, Argentinian submarine that sank in 2017 that uh, had a casualty, and then it sank below crushed depth and ultimately imploded. And uh, the, the thing is there is that that sound was detected. Uh, so as our earlier guests talked about with, with propagation of sound through waters and through nations having devices in the sea, both for military and for scientific and other purposes, and with a lot of interest in sound at sea, so there are devices that can pick up sound. There have not been any news reports of uh, the sound of a sharp, uh, what would be, uh, you know, explosion-like sound of, because this is instantaneous. Uh, and uh, so there haven't been any news reports of that. And I've been waiting to see if any of those would start emerging, which then might give a clue as to whether that is one is is what happened. I would add to that too. The San Luis is, is 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 also a metal bigger submarine, and so that's one of the problems in this submersible. It's a really tiny thing, and, and you know, to go back through things like SOSIS arrays and, and detect that, it may get buried because that sound would be so muffled. But they will be able to detect it at a point. I think it could have been missed because of the size of this object at the time. Plus, it's not built out of traditional steel. Uh, it's that composite uh, alloy they or composite material they use to kind of build it. Uh, Dr. Ram, we, we talked about this before you got on. Michelle Guest says, hello, STS Nation guests all the way from Australia. Love this channel. Haven't been able to stop thinking about these people. And it's horrific just thinking how scared they would be. We have people on here right now from Ireland, uh, the UK, Australia, as you see. Um, why? Um, I haven't seen a news story um, with this kind of global interest uh, in a while. Why such a riveted uh, audience worldwide to this particular story it, it's titanic I mean, I mean that's that's what it boils down to and many i got a lego titanic right behind me i've been building <laughs> for a year uh it's 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 one of those things it, it it catches the story people know this ship and you know there's an irony to this too i gotta say as i've been talking about this a lot over the past day or so is that out of titanic we all know the story but you know one of the biggest things about titanic isn't Jack and Rose. It's that two years after Titanic goes down, you get the safety of life at sea convention where all, most of the nation, major nations of the world come together and say, you know what, we need to do something to prevent a kind of Titanic from happening again. So we're going to mandate lifeboats. We're going to mandate lifeboat drills and life preservers. And you know what, we're going to say what distress rockets look like so that you don't think they're, they're something else. And you know what, 24 hour radio manning, we're going to do all these things, and out of the disaster of Titanic came all these safety provisions that apply to this day, because we've seen numerous iterations of Solus through its incarnations. It is the law of the sea today when it comes down to rescue. And I, I think in many ways, you may see something similar come out of this with Titan. Titan is is may do this for submersibles. Understand, submersibles is very well regulated. I mean, they're used commercially throughout the world. 
in, in, in offshore oil, in drilling, in cables, in fiber optic cables, all the time. They're used coastal for tourists. The Bahamas have, you know, a batch of these things. But, you know, when you go out into the region that you're in, into this depth of water for a specific, I mean, this, this, this submersible was designed specifically for diving on Titanic. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. And I had a lot of people ask me about this. It's like, you know, do you think this will be the end of, of, of deep sea diving on Titanic? It's like, well, Titanic wasn't the end of transatlantic passengers. You know, it's just, it, it really isn't. And, you know, in the early 20th century, we were leery of aviation. It was, it was the purview of the rich and the governments. Today, you don't think twice about getting on an airplane and flying at 30,000 feet. And there's going to be a day where you don't think twice about getting on a submersible and going down to 13,000 feet. We're just I think, not there yet. I think twice about the plane, and I'll probably think 10 million times. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> As I'm getting ready to fly overseas. Uh, some people. Some people. Yeah, some people. Not not you, maybe, but I do. Uh, Carrie G. Uh, now, I think we kind of touched on this. I'm going to um, drop out, I'm afraid. Uh, Andy, yeah. it was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. Um, Dr. M, can you hang with us for a little while and take some questions? Sure. I can hang um, a few minutes. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Andy, thanks so much. I'm going to reach back out. We might do this again tomorrow. It's a pleasure and uh, appreciate all the warm comments from your guests. Thank you. Thank right. you. Appreciate it. Have a good Thank night. You. Stay safe. Um, so, Dr. M, and you just let me know how long uh, you have. You have another 15 minutes or so? Sure. Okay. So, um, if Titan is found, uh, Carrie wants to know how much time would be required to resurface safely considering the change in pressure with the dwindling air supply, how much time do they truly have left? Right now, the number out there is a little less than 12 hours. Um, is that a, is that a, a real time or a, a fantasy figure there? Well, you're going by 96 hours from the point they sealed uh, the submersible, and that is their max time. How much time five people use in an incident like this, you never know. Uh, you know, th these, these are not rescue divers. They're... they're Five people who are going to be panicked, and that's, of course, going to change air supply on board. Uh, in terms of rescue, if you locate it, you know, you've got a couple of scenarios. And, and again, the Coast Guard really hasn't talked about this or this or the company. Uh, the way to bring this up is really there's two ways to do it. Number one is to attach basically these airbags, these large balloons almost. And you create buoyancy and you pull it up. And and But it's going to take time to get the bags down there, to attach them. Uh, you need ROVs for this. This is not going to be submersibles. It'll be remotely operated vehicles going down. They have brought ROVs either at to the site or en route to the site as we speak. And they would have to attach them, but then you got to bring the air down. It's a whole process to do this. The other option is a hoisted up. But again, that they've got some cable ships there that right now that are used in, in laying cables under the ocean. Uh, they could be used to help hoist it up. But that's another scenario. They've brought out this very high tensile strength cable because you're not just lifting the, the submersible. You're lifting 13,000 feet of cable. So, you know, it's not like you can just run to, uh, you know, the hardware store and get some cable. And off you use that, you're going to need something that's a little bit different. And then you got to bring it to the surface. You got to open it. I mean, there's there's a lot of time. And unfortunately, time is the one thing they don't have. Uh, I envision, I've been a volunteer firefighter for 20 years. You go until there's a point of no return where there's no potential for them to live. And then that's, you keep going and treating this as a rescue. And then there's still going to be, if it goes past that, the recovery, what happened to them? Because I don't think 
that we're going to be able to sit here and not know what happened, but that takes time. It took a long time to find Titanic. It's going to take a long time to find uh, something this small in the ocean. I mean, the, the, the obvious outcome we don't want is they don't get them in time, but to the point you just made, it could potentially be a very, 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 very long time till they're ever discovered. If ever, is that right? It can be. Uh, there was an incident uh, back in the 70s. There's a, a submersible called the Pisces 3 that uh, went down in about 1,700 feet of water, and they brought that crew up with 12 minutes of air left. So, I mean, you, you go to the end. You know, that's where they, they had figured it out, where they were at at that point. But, yeah, it, I mean, it, it could become a mystery. You just don't know. Again, this is a really small object, and especially if it's crushed at that depth, it's going to get smaller, and it's going to be really difficult to find and locate it's it's a really horrific story to talk about it's it, it's just but that's the practicalities of operating in those depths yeah it's morbid uh love versus money 68 says the irony of the trip is unbelievable in light of the titanic but um i wanted to run this by you chris brown is a well-known um adventurer um an explorer um he's been doing the rounds on tv he's a friend of the billionaire uh hamish harding who's on that uh, submersible right now. He said he was supposed to go, but he pulled out last minute because of safety concerns. And this is the quote from him. I found out they used old scaffolding poles for the sub's ballast and its controls were based on computer game style controllers. Eventually I emailed the company and said, I'm no longer able to go on this thing. I asked for a refund after being less than convinced. Um, with your experience, uh, Dr. M, would you ever have gone on this? I I don't think so. I I, I got to say, off the shelf equipment is not unusual in in industry. I mean, you see it all the time. Where something like a game controller. I, I mean, if you look at the way ships are controlled today, joysticks. I mean, it's you know, if you look at a modern cruise ship, how you bring it in, it looks almost like a game controller. However, that's hardwired into the system. You're not doing it with a game controller that's not even wired in. I mean, I mean, just the just the fact that the battery dies then you're out of luck. You know, and this is the kind of redundancy that a classification agency would come in and sit there and say, why, where, where's your backup on this? Where's that redundancy in this system? You know, uh, the ABS requires two forms of communication systems that have to be in place. You know, you need that on there. And, and, and again, it, it's the idea that, okay, I, I want professionals ensuring that this is a safe environment for me to go into. And again, I, I know the sea. I, I know the dangers associated with it and and going underwater in particularly just magnifies it. I've been in submarines. I understand how they operate and how they work. Submersibles are a whole different deal because they're completely dependent on that parent ship to be to be a mother for them, to be able to pick them up and deposit them. Communication is key. And a lot of, you know, the reason you hear a lot about these aborts is because this submersible did not have a lot of backups. And when primary systems start going down, you have to abort. You have to come back up. Mm. Uh, Merritt Seeger says, pray for them, everyone. I guess that's uh, all that can be done right now. Uh, so there's an employee named Dave Lockridge of OceanGate formerly, um, and he kind of blew the whistle. Um, there are documents publicly uh, available now that show that he warned that there might be safety pr uh, problems and it could have a quote unquote catastrophic outcome. OceanGate turned around and sued this guy, um, because they said he, uh, I guess, uh, went against an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. Um, and so they, they filed suit against him, and the case was eventually settled. 
I know you're not an attorney, at least I don't think you are, uh, Dr. M, but from a liability standpoint, um, how does this change the game moving forward for these companies? Is there going to be a, a whole lot more regulation? now? Uh, I'm not an attorney, but I'm married to one. So I, <laughs> next best thing. And as my wife told me the other day, you can't wave away uh, uh, basically, uh, 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 I don't want to say incompetence, but but liability. You know, if, if you're not doing due diligence, you can't waive that with a, with a signature. I mean, the company has to do what is necessary. Uh, Labridge in his statements, I think, are very indicative. If you watch what the CEO said in interviews and on his video and on his blog, on his website, you know, he basically made the statement that I don't want fifty year old white guys, you know, basically telling him. Uh, uh, what to do. I, I really want to, you know, build this outside the norms. I want to bring in, you know, young people with the, you know, the aviation industry in the background. That's what they wanted, which is great. It's fantastic. He, he wanted to propel undersea tourism. The problem is you need that catch. You need that experience at times, which this person was and saying there, listen, you're going past a lot of the, the issues that we need to make sure that we're enacting. And, and again, that's the whole reason for the classification, uh, a good friend of mine did a, a video on this and he talks about this. You know, the U.S. Navy learned in blood what happens when you send submarines into the ocean and you don't do enough to ensure that. You see it with the Scorpion, you see it with the Thresher. Uh, but since then, you haven't seen anything with U.S. Navy submarines. And that's the reason is because they have that kind of redundancy in place. Mm. Um, Salome Hart, just to show how far this story uh, goes in terms of global attention. It is 1.14 in the morning in South Africa. I can't sleep worrying about these people. My worst nightmare is to be trapped underwater in the dark with oxygen running out. In a weird way, the media is sort of comforting because we're all together in this uh, throughout the world now. We can all uh, kind of watch this together and, and help each other. Um, but it is a, a very eerie story. Um, Lord only knows if it could be marine life form that hit them, put them uh of course, this was a comment I was looking for because this is close to what we're talking about, but yet different. Reminds me of the Chilean miners and the Thai uh, soccer team. Hope there's a po positive outcome here, too. They were trapped. Um, hopefully, uh, they can get out of this. Um, Dr. M, back to you. So one of the employee, this guy, David Lockridge, concerns, if you could translate this for me, he said he primarily became focused on the company's decision to rely on sensitive acoustic monitoring, cracking or popping sounds made by the hull under pressure to detect flaws rather than a scan of the hull. Lockridge said the company told him no equipment existed that could perform such a test on the five-inch thick carbon fiber hull. What, what does this mean in English? So what they're basically saying is they were listening for sounds that would indicate as they went through test dives, whether there was uh, problems with the hull because they're using a, a substance not usually used in submergence and submergence. You're usually in a big metal sphere. I mean, that's usually what most deep sea submergence is. You're in a metal ball. And then you have these windows, which look like big, huge, massive triangles because they push into the window. So you look through that little tiny peephole, but it's a bigger window on the outside. And the pressure is actually pushing that in. You want a nice sphere because that pressure is equal around the entire area. They created a tube, and that tube isn't metal. It's this, it's this carbon fiber element that really hasn't been used before. And then at the end of it, they literally glued on titanium caps 
onto it. And what a classification society would probably have required is a survey of that hull, you know, with you know some sort of X-ray or some sort of machine to time to, to define flaws. You know, I, I joke about this. My my son loved MythBusters. He used to watch that forever. And there's an episode of MythBusters where they take a a rail car, a long rail car that carries liquid in it, and they pull the vacuum in it, and and they tried to see if it would collapse, and it wouldn't. But then they dropped a weight on it. They put a dent into that into that uh, tank. And they pulled the vacuum, and with 14.7 pounds per square inch at sea level, it crushed a solid steel tank. That's sea level pressure. You're talking about 380 times that pressure at depth, at 3,800 meters, 13,000 feet. There is no room for it. And, and that's, this is my point, is, is you cannot have enough redundancy when it comes to checking this type of equipment. Mm. Obviously, we're on the air live, and I don't know that this is true. And I just tried to check. That's what I was doing. I hope it did distract Doctor M. But uh, Ganja Mama may have smoked too much because she says, "I just heard they found the sub. It's on CNN. If anyone knows anything uh, about that, um, let's hope it's true and everyone is okay." But uh, I have a feeling that that is potentially a false report, which we get in situations like this. Um, back to Doctor M. So. Uh, while an international effort is underway to rescue uh, these people, there's a German adventurer who came out. His name is Arthur Leubel. He's 60 years old. And he said uh, he once went on the same exploration, but he called the voyage a, quote, suicide mission uh, as a race against time before the vessel loses its oxygen supply. He said he noticed a slew of red flags. I mean, these are guys who are like legit adventurers, something I will never be because I like the comfort of my bed and cable uh, TV. Call me crazy. But um, when these guys are all kind of blowing the whistle, this other guy who is an explorer, um, again, are they going to have to really go back and not only see what was happening at Ocean Gate, but are they going to have to go back now and check these other submersibles you've been talking about, the ones in the Bahamas, or the ones maybe in the Gulf that are laying down a you know cable and and working on oil rigs are all of these going to have to be reexamined? I, I don't think so because again, most of those are following the rules that are established either by industry or by the government, and they have that redundancy. You know, when you watch a SpaceX launch take place, SpaceX happens in the United States. You have the Federal Aviation Administration who is on top of that, and whether you like it or not. They're there to provide that oversight, and, and they can be a hindrance. They can be a problem. They can cause a, a difficulty. But, you know, at the bottom line, what they're talking about is safety. And in this case, they're op they were literally operating without that safety net in many ways. That outside agency coming in and inspecting what we call classification society would be what they were there to do, to identify it. And, again, this may also identify we need more stricter standards for how we construct these submersibles for this type of depth. As I said before, I think there's going to be a lot of questions for Horizon Maritime, which operates the vessel they were off of, the Polar Prince. I think there's going to be some questions for the Canadian Ministry of Transportation here, the Transport Ministry that does the, the, the inspections of vessels in and out of ports. And then I think the International Maritime Organization is going to look at what do we need to do to ensure there's regulation for the use of submersibles outside of territorial waters. And we'll go for a few more minutes. I'll push my luck here. Karen uh, Bridenthal says, 
Uh, some Coast Guard interviewed said there was a loud explosion sound at the same time they lost contact. Could that potentially uh, have been an implosion, Dr. Ammon? Is that something that they would have potentially heard? It, it could have been. I, I think the thing with the implosion, again, is a lot of that implosion sound that's heard is metal on metal as it crushes. You know, when you, when, when your other guest was talking about the San Luis, that's what happened. You had basically steel on steel crushing together, compressing, coming together, and that's what you tend to hear. This object, this submersible, isn't built out of that, so it's a lot different. So I'm not exactly sure how loud a sound is going to be. Uh, Gentil, problem is, even if they're up floating, they still cannot get out, and the air is running out. So horrible. Let's say they are floating somewhere uh, and no one is seeing them. Is there a way for them to open the hatch from you know the inside? How does that all operate? No, I think that's one of the reasons why you saw a big, huge influx of aircraft and ships in. Because when the, understand the way they do this is they actually drop the submersible upstream because of the Gulf Stream there. They actually have to drop it, and, and when they drop the submersible, it just falls straight falls straight, but it hits the current. And because it's a two-hour descent, it's going to move. And depending on if it had, if basically it bailed out, if it dropped its ballast, it would start to come back up. But this, the, the mothership is going to head to where they're supposed to be to pick them up. And so the, you, you're not exactly right above it. And so you have to start searching. And then you got to find this minivan size object that isn't very radar reflective uh, because it doesn't have a big mast, it doesn't have you know big huge metal reflectors on it. Now you got to find it in the Atlantic in in wave conditions and water conditions, and that's one of the reasons why I think they were trying to either find it at first, and then they called in the cavalry, the Coast Guard, and the Navy to start doing these air, aerial searches. But they can't get out; they're, they're sealed inside. It's almost like the old space capsules where the, the, the astronauts were sealed inside; they couldn't open it. And then you know you have Apollo One where three astronauts are trapped inside and they can't get out during a fire. Eventually, they they put in explosive hatches, but you don't have that in this case. Wow. Uh, Black Widow saying, damn troll, I went looking, no news, which is what I thought. So uh, if anyone does hear news, let us know. Ski Hat Sarah, uh, is the Coast Guard searching, Dr. M, for the sub at the expense of other emergencies? Um, are they putting everything... Uh, on the back burner, let's say a uh, boat was capsizing off of Cape Cod right now, would they have to send resources to aid that boat? No, let me be clear. Uh, talk about the U.S. Coast Guard for a second. So you, this is being staged out of the first Coast Guard district. Rear Admiral Mauger is the one who's been doing the press conferences. When the Coast Guard has a contingency like this, they will move other assets up to cover as they go out, especially on this. This is a really long range for the Coast Guard to head out that distance. So you're pulling P1, uh, uh, C-130s and large aircraft out. They will bring in other assets to cover that. They'll bring personnel back on. Uh, the Coast Guard, which is in terms of personnel, the size of the New York Police Department, covers the entire United States. Uh, you want to talk about an agency that is unheralded? It is the Coast Guard. These are the people who run into hurricanes when everyone's running out. And uh, I, I would argue they would never minimize or, or put at risk anybody else. But this is a large rescue operation. And understand the reason that it, it's such a large rescue operation of all things, it's the Titanic. Because the Titanic put in the process under Solus, that agreement I told you about before, where you have to provide assistance. Hmm. Uh, Werner says, do not understand, and neither do I, why they got no other system to determine their location than a walkie-talkie thing. Uh, we talked about a beacon. This might have been before you came on, but why wasn't there something aboard 
that would emit a signal or is quite impossible. Again, you got to go back to the company and the fact that, you know, these are standard procedures that would have been identified in a classification survey. You know, why is it that, you know, after 24 hours, a beacon doesn't float up? you know, that's released, you know, automatically, you know, through a, a, a water dissolvable uh, latch or something like that. Or, you know, again, it emits a beacon so you can home in on it. Again, you have these on vessels all the time. And yet you don't have that on this. Now, again, it, it could have had it, but they're not saying they ever mounted something like that. Uh, could have been destroyed if the submersible imploded. But we again, we just don't know because this is a kind of a homemade craft that was built by OceanGate for OceanGate without a lot of oversight. Uh, a few more minutes. I can't push my luck too much. Becky says, uh, James Cameron made the trip in another vessel 33 times, not to put you on the spot here, because I don't know anything about this, wondering if you do. On his trip, he talked to his wife on the phone from the bottom of the ocean. Was his vessel tethered? How did it differ from OceanGate? Do you happen to know this? No. Well, the vessel he went down on was, uh, if you watch the movie Titanic, that Russian vessel with those submersibles. Those are the submersibles that he used. These were Russian submersibles that were designed for deep water uh, rescues. And so they they're much larger uh, submersibles than what you're talking about, outfitted with better communication gear. Uh, basically, what you do is you outfit in uh, a low-frequency radio. Uh, a radio with a really long frequency, and, and because that penetrates through the water. Uh, the problem is it takes up space and consumes power. And, you know, when you're building something very low frills uh, and you have to manage things, this is one of the things that gets lost is, is that. Uh, that's, uh, that. Those submersibles had them because they were, rescue, they were designed as rescue subs for the Russian Navy, basically. And so uh, they had them so they communicate. Uh Leslie or Leslie or Lucille, Lucille, I'll go with Lucille McGuire. It fascinates me to think, thank you for the super sticker, by the way, about the line we ride as humans between the risk taking curiosity and spirit needed to push us into flight, space, and oceans, and the rule following nature uh, needed to keep us alive. That is true. Um, there is an argument to be made that without these people, uh, we wouldn't advance in terms of exploration. Uh, what do you think of this comment, Dr. M? I think, you know, there's been a lot of bashing for these are rich millionaires and, and why should we care? Uh, again, I go back to the, the issue of aviation and space. You know, look who's, you know, who did it in the 20th century in aviation. Look who's doing it with space now. But again, it changes. It, it, it's how you do it. You know, the first automobiles were expensive. Nobody had them but the rich. And then you had Henry Ford come up with the Model T and boom, you know, every American can have a car. And, uh, you know, a lot of technology comes out of this. A lot of application comes out of this. There, there's science to be had. They could have been down there and found objects that have not been located before. Uh, we could learn a lot. I'm, one of my degrees is in uh, nautical archaeology. So, you know, I understand how important wrecks are for finding them. You have a lot of people out there who do that. You know, uh, 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 Paul Allen from Microsoft ran a vessel for a long time, the Petrel that went out, used ROVs, and found World War II wrecks everywhere in the Pacific, the Lexington, the Johnston. And we learned a lot about how those ships were lost and what happened in the last moments of them. And so I, I think there's a science element to this. I think it is important. But at the same time, you have to mitigate that with, with risk assessment. Are we taking a risk? You could have done this dive in a much safer platform, I would argue. And I love that soundbite of yours, which I'm going to use to tease the show at the beginning about how the ocean is always looking for ways to kill us, which that's how I feel about it. 
Um, did, have you personally had a close call in all your time uh, on the water? <laughs> the, uh, the the irony is I, I sailed for seven years on deep draft vessels and and I've been through storms, hurricanes, uh, got hit by lightning on a ship, had a fire on a ship and everything. But the closest call I ever had on a boat was with my local volunteer fire department on a lake where I let one guy drive who never should have been behind the wheel of a boat and almost ran us into a dock and I was sitting on the bow and I almost got basically cut in half about five miles from my house. So that's, that's the closest I ever came to, to losing my life on a boat. What, what uh, they say all the accidents happen within like you know, a mile radius of your home, right? Uh, what, what state are you in? I'm in North Carolina, North Carolina. Um, Patricia Burns, uh, the press conferences are just to keep media and the public at bay. They know it is already doomed and that's why all offers of help are being refused. Do you agree with this? Uh, I, well, I think you have limitations for offers. Let me be clear. They've moved remotely operated vehicles. They've moved equipment out there. Uh, I, I think, again, you, you, there's only so much assistance you can get, especially in the time frame where they're at. And you're in such a limited time frame. Uh, you can only get so much out there. I, I think that press conferences are always meant to do one thing, and that is to provide what information they want to make available. Uh, and a lot of the people who I would want to hear from right now aren't available. They're out there. They're in the process of doing this rescue. I Again, I talk about the fact that I, I, I do firefighting. You know, while I'm fighting the fire, I don't have time to talk about how we're fighting the fire. You know, you got afterwards, that's when you want. And in the midst of a rescue, it's really hard to get good, straight information. But I, I do think that the assets and material are out there. I think one of the problems, again, goes back to OceanGate, is what was their plan B should plan A fail? Should this submersible not come up? What's our backup plan? Do we have a concept of how to go find this thing? And what are we going to do to go retrieve it? You don't need everything on the boat, but you should have it staged or at least know where this stuff is to go get it. And it doesn't seem like OceanGate had that. And, uh, Whew, this whole topic is making me is making me sweat. Um, I've been in news a long time, and so I know the next story that's coming, and that is going to be uh, taxpayer money. That's what people are going to look at. How much is this costing Americans? It is uh, probably crass and premature to bring that up, and I can guarantee you, you will start to hear that story tomorrow uh, in the media, especially in light of the fact that there's uh, at least one billionaire uh, on this expedition. Um, how much does something like this, uh, Dr. Ram, do you have any idea what this effort will cost uh, the federal government and who ultimately pays for this? Well, normally in, a, in a, a marine salvage operation, you would have insurance. I mean, this is what you have P, uh, insurance either on the vessel or on the cargo. And so one of the things you would have to do is reimburse on that based on this. But again, it's not clear to me who insured this endeavor. Who does OceanGate have their insurance with to offset this? In terms of the U.S. Coast Guard, for example, this will come out of their operating budget. They'll shift money around if they have to. They will cut back on some flights uh, for aircraft if they need to. But yeah, it's going to cost money. And, and the thing about this effort, too, is you're seeing a lot of vessels pulled in. Now, understand under a mayday, under the stress, vessels have to respond. They don't have a choice. And usually they they will you know suck that up into their budget and then sue or level a, a salvage fee up against the company. So uh, one of the things I envisioned happening here is OceanGate goes away as a company. It's just going to dissolve. It's just, there's no way it survives this. Whatever assets they have will be used to 
recoup this, let alone lawsuits by those who are on board. By the way, if for some miracle the CEO does survive, uh, it'll be even worse. That's when he'll really get it from the media. Uh, if he perishes, the taxpayer dollar story won't be quite as bad. Uh, I don't even understand this question, but Dr. Bob is a doctor, I take it, so I'll ask it. Uh, and Dr. M, I'm hoping you understand it. Do the scrubbers require power to work to make O2 from CO2? No, these submersibles usually operate with some compressed air, but they operate with uh, scrubbers. It's kind of what's used in, in space travel, where basically, uh, you know, what you do is you scrub out the carbon dioxide. So you prevent the buildup of carbon dioxide and you reuse the oxygen that's in the air. And that's the dangerous thing. It's not so much running out of oxygen. It's, it's having too much carbon dioxide is the issue. So the system should be working without electrics. It should be valve and, and you know mechanisms that work it so that you can just turn valves and get oxygen in with scrubbers. It's designed for that. But again, I go back to the fact that this is built, you know, sole source. There's nobody who's checking it saying, okay, this is the American Bureau of Standard, you know, for air supply on the ship. Uh, who knows? Because he says it in the waiver that this vessel is not, you know, certified. Uh, and, and, you know, it's it's amazing that, that, that he says that. And I'm amazed at the intelligence of STS Nation here and Room. The Titanic went down because of deficits in the hull uh, sensor strength or tensor strength. I wonder if there might not have been a hull metal fatigue issue that basically breached and imploded, Dr. M? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, hitting the iceberg kind of contributed to that too, but uh, there could have been an imperfection in the hull and that could have happened by accident. Again, you know, if you, if you look at the image of, of this vessel, you see it has an outer skin around it. It has a, you know, you'll see it bolted in and there's a frame around it that, that protects the, the tube that they're in. So you, cause you don't want that getting dinged. You don't want that getting hit. You don't want that. But you know, one of the things that would be typical is after a dive, you would inspect that hole. You would take it apart. You would look at it. You would do sensor scanning to ensure that the depth, uh, and the, and, and the, the, the strength of the hull hasn't diminished. But you know, if you're just going by hole popping sounds, you know, okay, that sounds normal. Uh, then you, you may miss it until that one big sound comes. Uh, and we're going to wrap up in just one sec. Ima Chidiro, do the floats require their own power to activate? I think he's talking about the floats that attach when when it resurfaces back. If you look at the platform it's on, it's got those four floats on the corner, and that's what's used to kind of uh, actually holds the platform. It, it doesn't hold the the submersible. What actually happens is the platform drops down into the ocean, uh, and then the floats will actually pull it back up, and, and so you can bring it back up. At it, I'm I'm not that familiar with the platform and the specifics of it, so I, I can't give you a definitive on that. Mm. Uh, Toy White says this is just also overwhelming. Officials said in their live uh, briefing 20 minutes ago that the ocean is noisy and these do not appear to be like Morse code. I was hopeful until I heard that. Uh, Aria D says 10 hours remaining for those aboard the Titan. I hope a miracle happens. It was a miracle that I got. Dr. Salvatore R. McCurgliano, and I can say it, uh, as an associate professor of history at Campbell University in North Carolina and an adjunct professor at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Marine Transportation from the State University of New York Maritime College, along with a Merchant Marine Deck Officer license. The bottom line is he also holds a Ph.D. in military and naval history from the University of Alabama, hence the doctor title. So. Uh, the bottom line is this guy knows a lot. Uh, Dr. M, uh, I'm begging you uh, to come back hopefully as soon as tomorrow. Uh, is that a 
potential possibility. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I I was literally before the reason that kept me from getting on with you is I was talking to uh, uh, Singapore TV. So uh, if if I'm available, I'm happy to come on. And there you go. Real quick, I like to always think about the people. Stockton Rush, he is the founder and the chief executive of Ocean Gate Expeditions. He is aboard, as is Hamish Harding, a British businessman, an explorer, a billionaire. Uh, but just because you're a billionaire doesn't mean you deserve to die. A lot of hate uh, being sent his way. Uh, Paul-Henri Norjolet, a French maritime expert. And then you've got a British-Pakistani businessman named Shanzada Dawood and his 19-year-old son, Suleiman. So let's pray that they are all okay. Tomorrow night, we are back 7 p.m. Eastern with the Dan Markell uh, case, 150-plus reasons why Wendy Adelson should be indicted. And I'm going to look to do another show about the submersible tomorrow, especially if I can get Dr. M and Andy Norris, uh, as well as Dr. X and Butch Hendrick, a huge shout out to all of them. Until then, love you, America. Love you, North Carolina. Love you, UK, Australia, and everyone in between. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.